Rachel Botsman is a best-selling author. Her TED Talk views are in the millions. She lectures at Oxford University on the sharing economy. And her new book, Who Can You Trust?, wants to change our perception of trust and understanding of how traditional ideas of banking, media, politics and consumerism are being radically transformed. I'm Sandra Peter, and today we ask whether we are on the cusp of one of the biggest social transformations in human history. From the University of Sydney Business School, this is Sydney Business Insights, the podcast that explores the future of business. Welcome, Rachel, and thank you for talking to us today. It's lovely to be here. How did you start thinking about trust and how did this book come about? Well, I was working for the Clintons, Bill Clinton, not Hillary. And I think that was the start of me thinking about the relationship between trust and power. This was in 2008, and it was when we were starting to use technology seriously in election campaigns to mobilize people. And I left to write my first book, What's Mine Is Yours, about the so-called sharing economy. And the piece that always fascinated me was how do you take these ideas that really shouldn't work on paper and get strangers all around the world to trust one another through technology? And so I've been researching that and looking at it in the context of marketplaces. And then about three years ago, I had a hunch that that was part of something even bigger. And the hunch was that trust in institutions, so trust that used to flow upwards to experts and regulators and authorities and academics and CEOs, was starting to flow sideways and that a lot of the patterns of disruption, a lot of the pain, a lot of things that we're seeing in politics were tied to this really big trust shift. Is there too much trust these days or too little trust? Is there a trust crisis? We see trust in the newspapers every single day. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that headline, trust is in crisis. I don't think it's a helpful narrative because I think it actually just amplifies distrust. So to answer your question, I think there is actually plenty of trust out there. It's just flowing in a different direction. And often people who are actually calling this crisis is because the trust is moving away from them. The most helpful metaphor, if you like, was how trust is like energy. Energy doesn't get destroyed, it continually changes form. And I think that's what happens to trust in society and is happening right now. And so yes, trust is being eroded in many institutions, but that trust is not disappearing, it doesn't dissipate, it just flows in a different direction to someone or something else. And sometimes this is a good thing because you can see how it can democratize voices and power, but sometimes it means we end up placing our trust in the wrong people in the wrong places and we actually give our trust away too easily. How is the way we trust changing? The interesting thing is that the process of trust itself, so what trust is, that's not changing, right? That's something I think is very innate to human beings and the way trust works. And I do think of it as a process. I think of it as when you're ever you're asking someone to trust, there's something known and then there's something unknown. And the unknown thing, it could be a new person that they've got to place their faith in. It could be a new technology like a self-driving car. It could be a new restaurant, a new place, a new concept, whatever it is. And the line between these two things is something we often talk about. We talk about it as risk. And I feel like we're very comfortable talking about risk because it's something that's quite hard and it feels like it's something that can be measured. But that's not what enables us to be vulnerable. It's not what enables us to place our faith in things and people. And that's trust. And so the way I define trust is it's a confident relationship to the unknown. But what's changing is how we get the information, who we can trust, where we place our trust. That's what's changing through the technology. So is technology helping us trust more or trust less? I think technology is actually speeding up 
the process of trust. So it's kind of like an accelerated age of trust, like trust on speed. You know, if you've ever watched a friend on Tinder, you know, swipe, 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 swipe. You know, if it was like, I haven't got a date. And I was like, it's 11 a.m. It's okay. You know, you've got like six hours to go. I'm guilty. I said, oh, my Uber driver is three minutes away, right? Like five stars again, because five out of five, you write me five. And so this is the interesting thing is that trust actually needs a little bit of friction. I think enduring trust actually needs human contact and human judgment because there's so many signals that you tune into. And technology is, and technology companies are very good at making that process seamless to the point that we don't think of what we're trusting. Probably the area of my life I've become most aware of this around is through information and media content. So I'm just trusting algorithms where I used to trust a traditional media institution as to what I should read. And now that process is becoming more and more automated and you have to sort of consciously slow that down. So how do you create that friction? How do you break out, for instance, of the Twitter bubble you might be in or the LinkedIn one or the Facebook one? The first thing I think is actually acknowledging or seeing that you're in the bubble. And that often happens, unfortunately, through something momentous like, you know, I realized after Trump, I hadn't interacted with a Trump supporter. And the only voice that I'd really been listening to that said he would get elected was Michael Moore. So I think that's the first thing is, is an awareness that you are in a bubble. And then it's like very, very conscious curation that you really have to go out there and find those different voices. And I think this is a big problem is that because we can self-select what we listen to, to some degree, we're not hearing those dissenting voices. We're less comfortable living in that place of discomfort and being challenged. And also, I think part of the decline of trust in experts is we demand from experts that they have an absolute black and white opinion on something. And it's actually not okay for them to come out and go, Do you know, what? we're not certain. And here's why we're not certain. And I think we actually have to be comfortable with that uncertainty to encourage that uncertainty. And the other thing I think actually comes from the design of the products and services. I've never had a product or a service experience that says, are you sure you want to click on this? Because you read those terms and conditions in 10 seconds. I was signing up to an account last night and do you want to link this to your microphone? Do you want to link this to your contact space? Do you want to link this to your Facebook account? It was in a minute, right? All these things where, are you sure you want to give this app the ability to listen to your conversations? And did you? No, I didn't. And that's the thing. I've actually paused now and been like, do I really want to do this? And then what is the benefit and why am I giving this away? And am I giving my trust away too easily? Is this also about literacy, about how we use these products, how we use the services? 100%. And to really understand, and I'm not saying that people designing these products and services are bad, but it's what the technology inherently wants. It wants to be seamless. It wants to be frictionless. It's measured by how much of our attention it gets every single day. It is a case of literacy. And I think it's also, it's a really hard challenge because so much of trust, a key component, or I should say trustworthiness, is integrity and intentions. And so... Sandra, you are very competent and I know that you're dependable and I know that you care, but it's your intentions, I think, are really the key piece in terms of enduring trust. But I don't know how you trust the intentions of machines and algorithms, how you develop the literacy to understand that is the challenge. To get around that, we've tried to digitize things like reputation. We tried to solve problems like the one you described in your book, 
childhood story <laughs> of the nanny <laughs> of the, the nanny. nanny yeah we brought in technology to try to digitize reputation mm. i want to explore that a little bit whether that is useful in any way or the downsides that come with it are too great I think this is inevitable. We digitize music, film, identity, reputation is next. And by reputation, I mean like what people think and say about you online, how you behave. So everything from like, did you pay on time to if you're an eBay seller or an Airbnb host, whatever it is, what other people think of you at work. The story of the nanny was a really important story actually in the book because I realized that this obsession with how we place our faith in strangers was because when I was five, I think my mom hired this nanny it's a long funny story but she was competent she was reliable I think she even did care but it turned out that she was running a very very large drugs ring in North London and then my dad was arrested because she'd used her car as the getaway car in an armed robbery bank robbery so I started thinking a how did my parents make this bad decision this poor judgment and I realized that they faced this trust gap that they thought they had enough information but there was this illusion of information and then I started to wonder whether they would have made the same mistake in the digital age. One of my favorite quotes in the book, it's not mine, it's from Diego Gambetta, where he says, trust has two enemies, not one, bad character and poor information. The reason why I raise that, because that's where the reputation systems become really interesting. Now, I'm the first one to say they are extremely flawed on many sites, because trust is really contextual. So just saying someone's five out of five isn't helpful, right? And you're starting to see in places like Airbnb accuracy and cleanliness and responsiveness. And so you're starting to see people rated against things that are actually useful. And then the babysitting sites were really interesting to me because 75% of all applicants were rejected because they're using machine learning to actually verify, do you have that childcare certificate? Do you have a clean driving record? Which I thought was really interesting. But what they're doing is they're thinking about signals and reputation in a way like who do you know that I know it's that my son's parents school the repeat family badge I think is a really interesting one so did that family have that sitter back and so I think the way we measure and aggregate reputation is going to look really different in 10 years time but it will become a currency not across the board right we're seeing places like China develop a very different way of assessing or digitizing reputation we are and this comes to a really key question, and it's not just around reputation, it's who manages and owns the data around the reputation and what is done with it and how much control we have over it. So the China chapter was the hardest one to write. So in China, there's this system which is called a social citizen score. Think of it like a trust score. And it'll be mandatory by 2020. And how does it work? So it has different inputs. Some of the inputs are pretty easy to understand. So do you pay your bills on time? But then... They're looking at purchasing histories. They're looking at things that you say. The piece that really I find frightening is the potential that if you said something online that the Chinese government didn't like, that your score would actually impact my score because we were linked in. Because you came on this podcast. Yeah, literally linked in. And there's a culture in China that you keep other people accountable. When you interview Chinese people about this, they think this is a good thing because people have a lack of traditional credit histories in China. There's high instances of fraud. So they can see the economic argument. And the reason why the chapter was so hard to write is because it's really easy to point the finger at China and go, like, look at that system of, you know, that's George Orwellian. You know, like, that we'd never have that in the West. But then... Aren't we doing it really in the West? Exactly. It's not visible. So at first I wrote it and I was like, this is completely wrong because 
their argument is right. There is an element of control in the visibility of the information. The thing that deeply disturbed me writing that was that the penalties do not fit the crime. So what are the penalties in the system? Oh, they introduced it with the rewards, which I always find really interesting. And then they just banned more than 6 million Chinese from going on aeroplanes and fast-speed trains because your trust score is too low. Your kids can't go to certain schools. You can't apply for certain jobs. It goes on and on. You can't get a nice table at the restaurant. You can't get a nice table. You can't go to hotels, certain golf clubs. It's a very, it's very long a Black longest. Mirror episode. It is. And I think Black Mirror in general is so clever because, as Charlie Brooker says, it's the future in 10 minutes' time if we're clumsy. You know, you look at that nosedive episode and she wants the apartment, which is why she's trying to improve the score. And, and smile better. Love that. She practices every morning her smile. And these systems, they understand that you need a goal. You need a nearing goal, right? And so therefore, what are you willing to give up to get to that nearing goal? And you need the carrots and therefore you'll deal with the sticks. And it really is gamified obedience. I think it's more than that. I think it's a popularity contest that only a few people can win. And it's just not that far off because if you look at your own behaviors around whatever the social media channel is, there's already a form of addiction there in terms of a race to the top or a need to be liked. But also, if we think about how that's playing out in the West, in places like Instagram, where we have hashtag van life, where we imagine and we perfect these pictures of a life that doesn't really exist, but we want to portray that it is so perfect. How is this idea of digitizing reputation working out with for-profit companies we have in places like the US or Europe? They literally see this as liquid gold because so many traditional insurance industry, for example, and their whole business model is being able to predict how you behave. And they're the first ones to say, like a lot of systems they use or the financial industry, they're retrospective. And so if they can have things that are forward looking and start to say, we could predict the propensity of your behavior around a certain thing in the future, that's worth a fortune. One of the most interesting people I met interviewing the book was a guy called Savvy who founded this company called Truly. He was the youngest partner ever made at Bain. He went to Harvard Business School. Not that that makes him an ethical person, but just a really smart guy. And he invented this thing, which is very, very deep drawing of the web to build a profile of you that you could use to get more control over the way that you get a loan. And maybe naively, he didn't realize how valuable this thing would become, that companies would want this because they could get a very deep portrait of people's traits they did it on me and it's really phenomenal how far they can go and how deep they can go so it's really a question of when will it happen for us we're pointing the finger at china but no i think it's china today somewhere near you tomorrow i do believe this and i think this is inevitable and people have high hopes around the blockchain i really think we need to be asking now who is controlling all this data and where is it going and how are other people extracting value from this in China, it's the government that controls this, which I don't think is going to happen in the West. But you've got to look at who is likely controlling and it's going to be one of the big four, Facebook, Google, Microsoft or Apple. And I don't know how you prevent that from happening. What about Amazon? Do they have a different role to play? I do this very, very crude exercise with all kinds of audiences and I ask them to clap for the company they think is the most trustworthy. So on the side is Google, Facebook and Amazon. And Amazon always wins. And this is so interesting to me because I can trust Amazon to deliver my packages. I don't trust them to pay taxes. I think it's so interesting that they just launched the Amazon key. It's just astounding to me that people are going to buy a key which was developed by your university and then a camera in their home so they can see when that parcel is delivered. And Amazon, I think, is a classic case of, and guilty as charged, when convenience trumps trust. 
and that we will give the trust away because of the convenience of the service that's being offered. And we mistake that for being a trustworthy company. How are we giving away that trust with things like smart speakers with Alexa? Helpful female assistants, as they're often called. I did a very quick experiment with my daughter and she's three and a half. And I said to her, meet Alexa, you can do anything you want with her. And the first question was, is she like Siri? And what was interesting was, you know, I think it's because she's half British that she just asked so many questions about the weather. Like we knew it was not going to rain that day. And then the songs, like they're testing it. But then what frightened me was by day two, she realized she could order things. She thought it was magic that she could use her voice. And then the next day, a massive box of blueberries arrived. And then the next day was what worried me because she loves picking her clothes. And she stood in front of Alexa and said, what should I wear today? And this for me marks a transition point that we're going through at lightning speed is that my trust in technology, so this recording equipment, is that it does something and it's reliable. Increasing our trust in technology won't be that it does something, but that it decides something for us. That's where that integrity piece really comes in, because how do you trust the intentions of the decision making? So with the Amazon, the Alexa, the next version has a camera. So Alexa doesn't just hear you, she sees you. And because Amazon's just launched their fashion brands, because they want to do to fashion what they've done to books, and they will, which I think is very sad, they'll make recommendations. She could change and the style check would say like 66% think you should wear your tiara outfit and 40% think you should wear that leopard print thing. But you know what, those shoes don't really go. Would you like to order a pair? And they will come like the blueberries and the repeat songs from Frozen. They will come within an hour, not in my house, but some courier will come round and open the door and voila, they'll be there. So why this very rapid and huge shift from trusting technology to do things for us to trusting technology to make decisions for us? It's a really good question. I think it's been waiting in the wings for a long time. And one of the things I talk about is these trust leaps when we take a risk to do something differently. And I think we've kind of been training for this. When we use Netflix, we don't think about it, but that is outsourcing decision making on what we're going to watch, the Twitter fees, whatever it is. And so I think now we're ready for these monumental leaps around decision making. I think it's rubbish when people say people won't trust self-driving cars. I think people will take the leap and then millions will follow very, very quickly. And we will trust that car to decide to a point where within a short time frame, the human decision making will come into question. Why do we assume that these machines can behave ethically? Do we assume? Is it an assumption? Is it a desire? Or is it just a lack of thought? A lack of consciousness? Probably the latter. Maybe the speed at which we make these decisions that makes us trust because it's much easier. Yeah, because I don't think it's apathy or ignorance. I think it's that it's seamless. I think it's that there is no friction in it and it works so beautifully. We're naturally trusting beings. We want to give it away. We do. So weird things become magnets for our trust. And so you actually have to design things for people not to trust them, if that makes sense. Germany has recently developed, they're not legally binding, but a set of guidelines for car manufacturers around autonomous vehicles. And they made a big case out of making sure that the people who design and build these machines are the ones who should be held accountable and responsible for what these machines do. How do we place back accountability and responsibility to platforms like Amazon or Google or Facebook? Accountability is one of the key questions of the decade. And I think we see this playing out in all different places. 
I'm not sure it's as simple as the creator is accountable because who is the creator? To ask a really basic question, when you're turning ethics into code, is it the person that programs the car? Is it BMW, the car manufacturer? Like, So where that trust really lies, I think, is an interesting question. And then I think more broadly with accountability, the platforms like Facebook is a classic example. They're starting to say, okay, we kind of acknowledge we're not a neutral pathway. Kind of, right? Do you agree? <laughs> I'd agree with kind of. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It was a big emphasis on kind of. But we're not a media company. If you're a media company, then you're exposed to all different kinds of regulation, right? So we're not a media company. So therefore, we're only going to have four and a half thousand community analysts who are going to edit this content. Well, that's one analyst per 466,000 users. They're up to about eight and a half thousand now, but it's not making oh, a difference. Oh, eight and a half thousand. Right, right. <laughs> but it's a drop in the ocean, right? It really is. Is it four and a half thousand photos every second? What are they? And that's the troubling thing. And even like with things like Uber, I think, as in London the day, Transportation for London said, we're not reissuing your license. It's an argument of accountability because they're not saying we don't believe in ride sharing. They're saying when something goes wrong, you, the company, have to take more responsibility. I do think they need to take more responsibility and I do think they need to grow up. But this is this really delicate tightrope we're walking because we don't want to overregulate these things. Like there has to be some personal responsibility. And so it's how we find that balance. And I think they have to take accountability for the things that are hidden. And this is where I think this notion of transparency is really interesting when it comes to trust. Because I fell into this camp where people go, more transparency is the answer to trust, right? You've given up on trust when you need things to be transparent. But what I think we need more information around is the intentions of these things and that they are really ethical questions. And so again, I think who's training these people? How are they asking these questions? And then what is the right body to keep them accountable? Because I don't think it's traditional regulation. Nor is Wikipedia. Facebook's last attempt is to say, well, Wikipedia will sort this for us. Is that what they've said? Yes. They will include links to Wikipedia on every article. So you can look up the source if you want oh, to. Really? Oh, well, the problem's solved then, right? <laughs> it's all sorted. But I do think the answer will come from the crowd. I do believe that. I think the International Consortium of Journalists is a really interesting model, right? So it's not saying we don't need professional journalists and we don't need those traditional structures, but how can people work together in a more collaborative way that isn't stuck in a traditional media structure? So Rachel, what worries you most about the future? It's going to sound quite bizarre, but we forget what it is to be human. That's what worries me, that we won't be able to discern an avatar or a bot from a human being. And why that worries me is because human beings are messy and they're complicated and they make mistakes. And we're wired, not always, but to forgive people and to work through that. And what worries me is that machines will be not perfect, but they won't have these moral complexities, these behavioral complexities. And so people laugh, but I genuinely worry that my daughter will fall in love with a bot. So the problem is not that we won't discern between a bot and a human, but we won't care. Well, sometimes we won't be able to discern, we'll be fooled. So I think I write in the book about the woman who fell in love with a cyber lover bot and she thought it was a real man. But in some cases, we'll choose the bot over the human because they will be the perfect boyfriend, so to speak. They'll know what to say and they'll always be there and they'll get smarter in understanding you over time. 
So that's what worries me is our ability to discern, but then that we choose one over the other and that we really lose this sense of what it is to be human. And that's not this fear of like robots taking over the world. It's actually that my children and future generations really understand what being human is. So our willingness to forego the messiness for the illusion of perfection? Yeah, and I don't know if perfection's the right word, but the illusion of, is it efficiency? The illusion of something better. Yeah, that is my concern. So what do you think will be our ability to discern fact from fiction and human from robot and useful from right? It will be incredibly complicated. I don't know if we will, because you're already seeing this now, right? You're seeing people who know how to speak to people's feelings over facts. And in a weird way, it sounds funny to say, but trust is trumping the truth, which is not a good thing. And this is where we started. That we'll place too much trust in the wrong people in the wrong places is a real fear. And it's not even like we won't have the skills to discern. It's just that we'll be so good at fooling people. And so how we emerge from this so-called post-truth society is a really big concern. And also that we might not have the skill to discern. I mean, recently, I think it was the University of Washington that developed AI that could write restaurant reviews that were not only believable, but also perceived as useful. Mm -hmm. So to what extent we will have the ability to actually discern fiction from truth? And do we care that they're true? And this is why I think Gambetta's quote is so interesting with this bad character and poor information, right? So do we care that it's poor information? Well, we might care if it was poor information, if we really understood the intentions of the person providing that. Or I think the other thing is the damage that it could do. So how we actually understand the consequences of this decision making. What do you think we can do better? As I said, I think we need to take more personal responsibility for this. Some of it is an awareness thing just really starting to think about how easily we're giving away our trust. I think there's some really exciting things happening in design. And I think a lot of it starts young with education, you know, so how you're training people to think of this way. Is at St. Martin's and one of the students said they were going to do a project where they were going to design something that intentionally slowly earned our trust over time. And this big smile came on my face. And I said, well, give me an example. And he said, well, imagine I was a bank and you tried to give me $10,000. And I would say, I don't want your $10,000. I want your $10 because I'm going to prove that I'm trustworthy. And then I'll ask you for $100. And obviously that's not a world solution, but that he was thinking in that way, that he could do it in a way that was immediate, but that he was going to slowly earn that. The thing that actually gives me hope is I think the organizations that are going to win are the ones that inject the most humanness real humans that really understand how this technology can amplify our emotional intelligence. And that's what I think we need to be focusing on is how does it amplify us to be more and better human beings versus outsourcing all this trust to the technology. So what gives you most hope about the future? I am a genuinely optimistic person. I mean, I think I was naive. I think I'm less naive now. We have this tendency to think things are going to turn out a lot worse. Teaching gives me hope. I think we point our finger at millennials, which I find strange because millennials are now like 38, right? So they're not young people anymore. But when you see how they think about the world and they are asking these questions, and I think we're in this mess right now, but that there's a generation that will come through and will think completely differently about these things and that the face of media, the face of regulation, the face of banking, it will have a very different DNA to it. 
Rachel, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to Sydney Business Insights, the University of Sydney Business School podcast about the future of business. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can visit us at sbi.sydney.edu.au and hear our entire podcast archive, read articles, and watch video content that explore the future of business.